The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. For many years, I had seen a picture of a particular castle in Europe. And every time I'd see that picture, I was like, wow, that's, that's really pretty. And never knew what castle it was, never knew the backstory. And so uh, recently I saw that, the picture of that, and I decided, okay, I've got to, I want to know like a little bit more of the, the castle and its story. And I actually found the story is pretty fascinating. But the name of the castle is Nauschwinstein. The chances that I'm pronouncing that correctly are pretty minimal, um, but we're going we're gonna to go with it anyway, Nauschwinstein. And I bet that if you saw a picture of this, You've probably seen this before because it's often photographed. Uh, here's a picture of Nauschwinstein uh, Castle. I mean, really, uh, really stunning. It's in Germany. It's right in the uh, Bavarian Alps. And it was built by a king over the, the kingdom of Bavaria. His name was Louis II but he was known as Mad King Ludwig. And the story behind when, when he built this, and this is uh, often thought to be the inspiration for a lot of the Disney castles. It's got that fairy tale look about it. And um, he, he started building this castle because he wanted that, he wanted exactly that. He wanted that fairy tale Castle. Now they started this, there's some th- interesting things about this castle, and, and in the end, it's actually kind of a tragic story. Um, for starters, they built this castle, they started building this castle in 1868. Now, just think about that for a second. That's about seven or eight hundred years after they were building castles like this. That's not in the era where they were building castles like this. That's just a couple decades before they started building the skyscrapers in Chicago and in New York City. So this is already in the Industrial Revolution. It's long after the era of building castles. But um, Mad King Ludwig wanted to build the castle of his, of his fantasy, really. And the reason that he built this, and the reason that he's called Mad King Ludwig was for a couple reasons. He had, uh, for starters, it's not only from the wrong era, but also he had just lost his power in a war, and he was a puppet king. And so many people think that he was building this to prove to himself and other people that he still had the power, he still had the kingdom of his dreams. He built this, uh, he started building it in 1868, and um, they were building it, a decade passed, and then in the early 1880s, they, uh, they put the, the top on the, the first part of the castle, and then they started working on the interior rooms, and by 1886, they had found Mad King Ludwig killed in a nearby lake. Most believe it was suicide, uh, some suspect that it was assassination that's part of the mystery behind this castle. He had designed this castle to have 200 rooms. By the time that he was done, by by the time he was dead, they had only completed about 14 of the rooms. 
And the, pretty much as soon as he died, construction stopped and was never completed. Within months, they turned that castle into a museum. So it was never completed. And all really kind of poetically, ironically, one of the rooms that was mostly completed was the throne room, but they never fully got his throne. So he actually never sat in his throne in his fantasy castle in his imaginary kingdom. And they say, even though they built it for 200 rooms, they say, really, if you look at the design of it, it was really just built for one, for this king. The, the sad part about it, and another reason that he was thought to be insane, is to build this castle, he bankrupt the remaining Bavarian kingdom to do it. It's really a tragic a tragic story. And so what's interesting is when we see a picture like that, and we see it's one of the most photographed buildings in all of Europe, when we see that, it, it, on the outside, it's beautiful, but on the inside, it's mostly empty. And at this point, it's just a, a photo op. It's, there's nothing active in it. It's just a museum to someone who wanted to build a, a castle of a fairy tale for a kingdom that he didn't even really run anymore. Now, I share that story because um, this passage that we're studying is a passage that actually talks about something every one of us cares about. And the more years we live on this earth, the more and more we care about it. It's something um, that we call legacy. And each one of us, at some point, there's this growing desire that we want to leave behind a legacy. But really what we want is we don't want to just leave behind an empty, hollow photo op. We want to leave behind something that is active and thriving and continuing on after us. And what's so powerful about the passage that we're looking at is that it walks us through how we can leave behind something of true worth and value and magnitude. Something that's not hollow, something that's not just a, a picture of something, a symbol of something. We can leave behind something of incredible value. And often we're tempted to think, well, that's only something that certain special people do. They leave behind a really valuable legacy like that, something that's of, of real value. But what this passage tells us is it's actually something any one of us can do, and it's often not even the people that we expect are the ones leaving behind the real valuable legacy. I want you to see what this passage says, because talking about the value of what we're leaving behind is one of the most important things we can pause and reflect on. Open with me to Psalm 127. This is part three of our series launching arrows. Let's see what this text has to say. Psalm 127. We're going to pick it up again in verse 1. And we're going to, if you're just now joining us in the series, we're going to recap a little bit um, what this text says. So Psalm 127, we'll start in verse 1. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, 
the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Now let's just pause right there for a second and let's walk through what this text says. Uh, We're taught, God tells us through this part of the Bible, it starts with this, Listen, if God's not building it, if we're trying to build something that God's not building, he says it's vanity. We're wasting our time. Let's say it's not just that we're building something. Let's say we're stewarding something. We're watching over something that's already built. If God's not the one watching over it, we're wasting our time. And probably this should get the attention of every single one of us in here because all of us have things we're building. We're builders. We're in God's image. We're like little creators. We're builders, and we can't help building. We're always building something. We're, we're building a, a career. We're uh, maybe building for retirement, maybe building wealth. We're building our health. Maybe we're building our resume. We're building our education. We're building into our kids. Like We're always building something. And this passage just confronts us, stops us right in our tracks, and pushes us to just really think from a a higher viewpoint. Man, if God's not building it, it's just a waste of time. Our reflex is typically to say, yeah, but I, I can do it. Okay, I can build it. I can watch over it. Look, if I just, if I just work a little harder, I, look, if I need to stay late, I'll, I'll stay late. If I need to, to get up early, I'll get up early. Whatever it takes, if I just put enough effort, if I just try hard enough, like I can really do anything. And so like if I, I, I can do it, I believe in myself, if I just try hard enough, I will make it happen. But Solomon, he, he kind of knows right where our brain is going because he was, he was a builder. He built an empire. And he only built it because that's what God was doing. And he says, honestly, here's the thing. We, we are reflex when we're confronted with the, with the vulnerability of how little control we have. Our reflex is to just strive harder to gain control. And we tell ourselves, our society tells us, our culture says, Our culture is, look, if you work hard enough, you can build it, you can watch over it. But what this passage, what God is confronting us with is, look, that's just not true. If God's not building it, you're wasting your time. And what Solomon says is extra effort and striving to try to gain control we don't actually get more control, we just get more anxiety. Because we're trying to shoulder what really only God can do. We're trying to be little gods over our lives. And he says, that's not how you're designed to live. He says, he gives to his beloved rest. And what transitions us from the vulnerability of, I really can't build this, whatever it is, wealth, retirement, career, family. I really can't, you know, reputation, a resume. I really can't build this to what I want, only God can. And what takes that from feeling, from feeling uncomfortable and vulnerable to being restful is when I realize that I'm God's beloved. And when I realize he loves me 
and his plan for me is far better than my plan for me. And when I rest in his plan for me and I say, okay, you are in control, then I shift and I no longer live a life. And this is so often how we drift into this, Christian. We drift into this mentality. We drift into this mentality where our prayers are basically, God, here's where I'm building. I could use your help. And what this psalm confronts us is to shift our prayers to say, God, where are you building and what do you want me to do? And instead of asking God to join us, we join where God is building. And so then we get to the end of verse two and we say, okay, I surrender, God. You tell me, where are you building? And I will I'll build there. And then we get to verse three. Which if you're following with the logic, it, otherwise it might seem like it's a completely different psalm or a different theme, but if you're following the logic, it's perfect. We get to the end of verse two and we say, okay, where do you want me to build? And then we get to verse three and he says, look, Behold, like, are you seeing this? He says, look right here. Children, they're a gift. They're a gift from the Lord. He says, you want to know where God's building? You want to know how you can join where God's building? Your first assignment, build at home. And by the way, we can um, take a lesson from the life of Solomon. He had God-given wisdom that he couldn't, he didn't even follow himself. He built an empire and lost his family. And everything crumbled after that. He says, look, children, the Bible, God is saying to us, children are a gift from the Lord. What are we building? This psalm confronts us and says, man, start at home. Start in your marriage. Start with your kids. Start with your grandkids. Start at home. And then it gives us a, a little bit more to, uh, as far as how we do that. Let's pick it up in, in verse 4. Here's what he says. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Solomon um, shifts his metaphor here. He started with this building metaphor, like what are you building? Now he's moving to a warfare metaphor. And he says, look, children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And we spent some time last week talking about this word for warrior is not like your everyday pedestrian word for foot soldier. It's not the word for archer. There are Hebrew words for both of those. This word is the Hebrew word gibor. It is for war hero. It's legendary war champion. And especially in Solomon's generation, following David and, and his his group of giborim, which is the plural, the Hebrew plural for gibor, he had a group of men who were these incredible war heroes called the giborim. And their stories would have been sung in halls for generations. I mean, incredible war champions. And this psalm with that context in mind is saying children are like arrows in the hands of a gibor, a, a war, legendary war hero. And we talked last week about whatever battles we're fighting, similar to whatever things we're building, whatever battles we're fighting, that's what we're going to shoot our children into. 
And so be the right type of warrior, warrior for the kingdom of God and seek first the kingdom of God. But he says, he doesn't just describe parents. He doesn't just describe us as warriors. Let's look at how he describes children as arrows because it's, I spent some time as going through this series looking through the generations for the last several hundred years, how what various uh, pastors and scholars, how they've thought about how children are like arrows. And it's fascinating. One of the things, uh, one of the pastors, preachers from a couple hundred years ago has pointed out, he says, you know, arrows, they're different than sticks in a very fundamental but key way. Sticks have a natural bent and warp to them. But an arrow, you have to take that stick and you have to shape it. You have to straighten it out. You have to sometimes, you, you, you have to shave it sometimes. You, sometimes you, what may feel like it's, it feels like it's hurting that stick, you're shaping it and forming it against even sometimes the, the twists and the curves in the wood. You're shaping it so that it will fly in the direction that it's supposed to go. It's such a, a powerful imagery of what we're called to do as parents. And it actually confronts something that's often thought in our modern generation. You know, there's a modern view of parenting that it says that what parents should do is to be more hands-off to let children self-actualize what's already inside of them. So what a lot of modern parenting says is don't guide your children, don't shape your children, don't teach your children, don't educate your children, let whatever is inside come to full bloom and let them find their own way. Can I tell you that could not be more unbiblical? That is diametrically opposed to what the Bible says. It says, parents, you and I will stand before God and give an account for how we trained our children in the ways of the Lord. We will, we will stand before God entrusted with these little children that really belong to him. And we are stewards over these little ones. We are entrusted by God to shape them. In fact, what Proverbs says is that there's folly bound up in the heart of every child. There is unwise tendencies. It's the role of a parent through discipline and correction to shape that child's heart in a way that is walking in the path of God. It says, teach our children. It says, it says right out of the gate in the law, teach our children to love the Lord our God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. To leave a child to follow whatever is inside their heart is to turn them over to the sin that's in their heart. We're called to train up our children. The, the, these arrows, we're called to, to shape them according to the way that God has called them to live so that we can send them in that direction towards that target with accuracy. You follow me? Arrows, they're not sticks. Uh, another... Um, Another pastor, commentator, he talked about how um, they're in the hands 
of a warrior. They're actively in the hands of the warrior. He's talking about children. They're, and, and, and he's saying, look, you can really only shape that arrow while it's in your hand. Once that arrow takes flight, there's not much you can do to shape that arrow anymore, is there? I'm going to tread carefully because I can drum up parent guilt in my heart very quickly. But there's an urgency that we have while we have them. Uh, this, um, this past week, it was just an, a moment. I was not even thinking um, about this at all, but I was walking down the hall in our house with one of my kids, and they were carrying a bag. It was maybe like their backpack with like books in it or a bag with toys, I can't remember. And we're walking and we're talking, and I turn around and I reach out my hand to grab that bag from them, to carry it for them, and I reach out to grab it, and I didn't feel the bag enter into my hand. I felt a tiny little hand holding my hand. And they're like looking at me like, why are you crying, daddy? You know, why are you, why are you weeping? And I had this thought like, wow, I don't know how many more times I'll get that. Now, I don't want us to all break down to tears, so let me move through this quickly. There's an urgency. Let's leave it at that. There's an urgency. Shape our children while we have the chance, while they're in the hand. Because at one point they'll be in the air and they're already being sent in the direction that they're going. Their arrows, they're not sticks. They're in the hand. And then he says, um, and then another commentator pointed out, he says, and their arrows, by the way, they're a weapon. Their arrows, they're not swords. So it's kind of a fundamentally different weapon. A sword, we're only really focused on the, the, the battle and the, the foe, the enemy, directly in front of us. Like if you've got a sword and you're kind of looking past this person to the next person, that's not going to go well on the battlefield. The sword stays in your hand and you're focused right at this opponent right in front of you. But an arrow is fundamentally different. It's an arrow, not a sword. The arrow is looking far, far, far down the way. It's looking at a distance and you actually have to have, you don't just start firing it. You actually have to have a target way far down the way that you're sending off and then you will eventually launch it. That's what children are like. We have to realize that it's not just the battle right in front of us. There's a long target way down the, down the way that we've got to focus in on, zero in on, and get ready because at some point we have to launch. They don't stay in our hand all the time, forever. We end up launching them. We just need to make sure we're launching them in the right target and not getting too consumed with what's right in front of us. Powerfully wise words for us. Children are arrows, they're not sticks. Children are arrows in the hand. Children are, are arrows, they're not swords. But he says one more thing about it. He says, and you're blessed if you have a quiver full of arrows. If you have that, the, the quiver, what you, that, that pouch you wear on your back, if it's full of arrows, you're blessed. Now this is, this part of this psalm is one of the most beautifully redeemed parts, especially into the New Testament. And Jesus really sets the tone for this because Jesus 
redefined family. And there's this one moment, it's in, you can go back and look at it, it's in Matthew 12 and in a couple other, Mark and Luke also uh, record this. I'm not gonna read it, but let me just tell you what, what happens. Jesus is teaching his disciples and his mother and his siblings, his brothers, um, he also had sisters, but his, his mother and his brothers come because they want to speak to him and they're waiting outside in this, this house that's full of people. And they send word that his mother and his brothers are waiting outside to talk to him. And Jesus says this. He says, look at these here, my disciples. He says, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And, and this wasn't to dishonor his mother and his brother. He, he, was, he always honored his, his biological family. Even though at times there was tension and conflict. But... He's redefining the sense of family. There is, we have our, our biological families, but Jesus establishes, we get adopted in to another family that in some ways, redemptively, is actually more real than our biological family. You say, well, how's that possible? I mean, we've got a, I'm, I'm related to this person by blood but we're related to fellow believers by the blood of Jesus. It's powerfully redemptive. It's powerfully, powerfully redemptive because there's things that can and should happen in the same way there is no perfect Christian church family. And there's things that we work through as a church family, but there's powerful moments of redemption that take place in uh, the spiritual family by the blood of Jesus. So for example, there are people that did not, that maybe grew up with parents, but they did not grow up with parents who were spiritually parenting them. And then people will come and find spiritual fathers and mothers in the church. There are people that are often estranged from their biological brothers and sisters and always have that longing and, and wish that they could have that relationship that they would love to have with their biological brothers and sisters. And yet they find brothers and sisters by the blood of Jesus in the church family. There's people that would long to have biological children or wish they could have more biological children, but there's something powerful that happens in the, in the spiritual church family by the blood of Jesus is we get to have spiritual sons and daughters. And a lot of times the imprint that we have on our spiritual sons and daughters is an imprint that lasts for all eternity. And so there's a powerful redemption that, yes, in this text, he's talking about our, our biological homes, but he's talking about in view of what the work Christ has done to adopt us into the family of God, there's a redemption that happens in God's spiritual family where though we have a certain number of biological sons and daughters in our quiver, we can fill our quiver full of spiritual sons and daughters. You follow me? Powerful text. We have arrows that our children are arrows, not just sticks. They're arrows in the hand as we're, we're shaping them. There's urgency. They're arrows, they're not swords. And we can fill our quiver full of arrows. And then he says one other thing about children that, that's powerful. I want you to take a look at verse five again. Look what he says. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. 
Now I want you to look at what he's saying. Let's get a framework for, the, for a gate. In this time period, in ancient times, a city or town, the gate was not just something that they closed for protection. The gate was like the town center. It was almost like uh, the courtroom and the city hall. This is where the leaders and elders of that town or city would come together and they would, they would judge over disputes. This is where contracts were done. This is where counsel was sought. This is where disputes were resolved by the, the leaders in that community. That's what would happen at the gate. The gate was a place that wisdom was expected to be present there at the gate. And so it's painting this scenario where someone is coming to the gate to face off with an enemy, an enemy that's trying to put them to shame, an enemy with an accusation against them, an enemy that's trying to tear them down. But I want you to picture, this is the image that, that is written here in the Psalm, that someone comes to the gate and standing with them are all of their children. Maybe now it's generations of, of children. Uh, adult children, maybe with their children. It's their generations. And standing there, it's their lineage, their children. It's evidence in their defense for their character. And as the community looks at this person, this man or this woman on trial, and looks at their children standing there with them, it's evidence for their character that they would not be put to shame. You kind of follow this, this metaphor here? here? Let me put it another way. I, I've, heard, um, I've heard a pastor, actually a couple different pastors say it like this. And, and this is, I've never forgotten this. Um, success could be defined as this. Success in life could be defined as this. The people who know me the best respect me the most. Those who know me the best respect me the most. And I've thought about that as a pastor. I mean, I, it's one thing to come up and to preach a sermon and to talk about the Bible and, you know, that can, you know, that can appear spiritual. But what about those people that have to work with me? Pray for them. Um, what about um, more than that? What about those four other people that have to live with me? <laughs> Rebecca and my kids, like they, you can, you can preach a sermon and appear spiritual, but like you can't hold up a facade with those who know you the best. Like that's who really, that's where your, your character really, really shines. And what if those who knew me the best, they saw me with all my flaws, my strengths, my weaknesses. They had to put up with me when I'm, when I'm down, but they see me how I celebrate. Like they see the texture of my life. They see the journey. They're up close and a witness to my life. If they can respect the character that God's forged in me, that, that would be a life that's successful. See, this is a, a biblical concept. Here's how it's put in the New Testament. Paul is speaking to, to one of his uh, to one of his children. By the, by the way, Paul believed in this idea of spiritual uh, sons and daughters. Paul had no biological children of his own. 
But it did not stop him from referring to Timothy and Titus as his spiritual sons and telling the church of Thessalonica that, that he had mothered and fathered them. Like he had a very robust view of the family of God and the imprint he was leaving on, on his spiritual children for all of eternity. And he, he says here to one of his spiritual children about the types of qualities that, that a church should look for in their leaders. And here's one of the things. He said, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And look at this. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It starts with this, like the first place to look when it comes uh, to character, the place that we start, it's echoed over and over and over, cover to cover in the Bible. Look, if there's a place where we're supposed to join God in building first and foremost, behold, look, let's start with our sons and our daughters. Let's start at our home. Let's start with not only our biological sons and daughters, that they would be spiritual sons and daughters, but other spiritual sons and daughters as well. Let's start at home. The Bible keeps bringing us back to building there first and foremost. Now, as when we began, I, I shared a story of a building that's really like a tragic legacy. It's a building that stands, but like as soon as it was done, like as soon as the, the initial person whose vision it was died, like it then became a museum. Like it was never really used. I mean, that guy, um, the uh, Mad King Ludwig, I mean, he lived there a combined total of six months, all that effort, 18 years of building, bankrupting his kingdom. Like it stands as a monument of emptiness, really. But about the same time in Germany that they were putting the roof on top of, of that, the first phase of that castle. In Spain, they were laying the groundwork for another building, a cathedral in Barcelona. Uh, it's called Sagrada Familia. Check out this picture of Sagrada Familia. I want to show you another story. It, it's hard to really get perspective on how big this building is. I don't, you probably can't see it. But if you look at these pixels down here, like way down there, those are people under those branches right there, okay? Like this is absolutely ginormous. It's about twice the height of Nauschwanstein in Germany. This is Sagrada Familia, it means sacred family. And they started, they laid the first stones for this cathedral in 1882. And there was really like one of the main architects that's remembered is Antoni Gaudi. And he, what, what his passion was when he was building this cathedral is in his area, there was a decline in their understanding of Christianity in his day. And he saw Christianity starting to blend too much with its culture. And so he wanted to build a monument that just displayed in all of this beauty and all the architecture and the, all the carvings and each different spire, he wanted it to, to just display the mysteries of the, of the profound message of the gospel. And so he began laying down the, this, this foundation and he started building. And the more that he built, the more he just threw himself into this until the point where uh, eventually this became the exclusive focus of all his work. He was doing no other projects. He was just working on this cathedral. He actually moved on to the property 
to, to keep building and building and building. And by 1926, 1926, Gaudi passed away. Now, what happened to this cathedral when Gaudi passed away? Did it just eventually just stop and become a, um, a museum? No. Because he had been raising someone up. He'd been mentoring someone. He'd been fathering someone, if you will. Uh, uh, another architect that kept the work going. And he kept building for a generation. And then another generation kept building. And then another generation kept building. And then another generation kept building. And you say, well, when was this building completed? It's scheduled to be completed in 2026 in our generation. At the 100-year mark of Gaudi's death, this, will be this is scheduled to be completed. Now you say, wow, I mean, if Gaudi had known that, like, maybe you just start a little smaller. Like, you know, that's like 150 years, buddy. Like, actually, no, no. Um, he actually said he knew, get this, he knew he would never see the completion. He actually thought it would take 200 years to finish. But here's what he said. The patron of this project is not in a hurry. He was building something that God was building. He wasn't building something that is a hollow example of someone's vanity. See, that, that castle just dropped. Why? Because it was a castle built for one. They estimate that 13,000 people can worship in the Sagrada Familia all at once. Here's the challenge. Are you building, am I building some fantasy castle to prove I'm king of a kingdom I really don't actually rule and I'm building a castle for one that doesn't just cost money, it's far more costly than that. It bankrupts those that I'm called to lead. Or am I building a house for worship that will stand worshiping for generations? Build a house for worship. Let's not build a castle as a monument propping up a false personal kingdom when we're at rest that Jesus Christ is the kingdom, is the king, and he's the kingdom. Let's build what he's building. Let's build houses that worship so that the next generation will build on top of that and will worship, and then the next generation will build on top of that and will worship, and they'll keep worshiping and worshiping and worshiping, calling the region and the city back to becoming worshipers of Jesus Christ. Church, can we be that kind of people that build those kinds of houses? Listen, some of you have the privilege. Listen, some of you have the incredible privilege of laying the foundational stone of your houses. 
And you say, oh, I never had spiritual parents. I never, I never had that in my life. I, I, never, I never saw, I never had, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have moms and da- mom or dad that, that took me and, and raised me spiritually. Do you realize the incredible privilege that you have? You get to lay the foundation stone. You, you've been gifted to steward that. Others of you have this heritage that you're stewarding, this beautiful heritage of generations that have gone before you that have faithfully laid down another level of a house built to worship Jesus. And now you have the awesome privilege of building on top of that another generation. Steward your generation of building well and build on top of what's gone before you. We're building. Can I, can I plead with you? You're not, just, you're not just holding sticks in your hand. While you've got them in your hand, shape them to be followers of Jesus Christ. If there's anything that you do, shape them. If there's one thing, if you can do one thing in your life, raise worshipers of Jesus Christ. Because they're arrows, they're not swords. You will have to launch them one day. And Christian, this is what so often happens. We treat our children like they're swords and all we can see is this next battle in front of us. And so we're just trying to fight this next battle rather than thinking long-term, I am launching a worshiper. Will this child for the rest of their life not only worship Jesus, but go on to raise the next generation to worship Jesus? Let me put it very direct. Let me just be a shepherd to you, parent, please, please do not prioritize anything over the spiritual development of your children, please. Don't prioritize their academic success, their athletic success, their musical or artistic success, their their social success. Please do not prioritize anything over forging worshipers of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. Because listen, you're building something that will not be done when you breathe your last breath. You're building something. The the target you're aiming at is not just getting through the next sports season. It's not just getting through the next academic calendar. You're aiming at a target that stretches into eternity. That's your target. You you want to stand on the edge of heaven and look down and watch the generations that came about. What will you care about when you're in the tangible presence of your Savior? What will you care that you forged into your lineage? That's the target. Send arrows into that target, Christian. Because this is what it costs your Savior. Your Savior described himself as a house, he said, look at this. He said, this temple, tear it down and it will be rebuilt in three days. Jesus had to be cut down, the true temple, but God raised him, the true temple, back in three days. He bled out. He bled out and was killed. He was estranged from the Father so that you and I could be brought in. That's the stakes. The stakes are what cost Jesus to bring us into the family. Let's not lose our next generation. I want to close with this. 
There's a particular group that is on my heart deeply this week. Some of you are prodigals. You're the children of many tears in prayer. Maybe you're 15, 16 years old. Maybe you're 25, 26 years old. Maybe you're 50 or 60 years old. And you know that you've got a mother or a father or a grandparent that has wept over your life. It's time to come home. Come home to Jesus. Because your true father in heaven loves you so much. He gave everything. He gave his son Jesus so that you could find salvation. It's my prayer that today is the answer to so many decades of prayer over some lives as some prodigals come home today. I want to give you that opportunity. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If today you are a prodigal, maybe you're 13, 14 years old and you say, it's time, this is not no longer my parents' faith, it's my faith. Maybe you're a young adult and you said, look, I've, I've just gotten my own taste of adulthood and, and I, I've got some frustration with how I was raised up, but I, I don't understand. I've got so many questions and I've got doubts and I've, and I've got hurts and wounds, but I just, I at least just want to come into the, my true father's arms. Maybe you're 50 or 60 and you said, look, I've tried to build my own life. I'm tired of, of building it myself. I want to I, I, I want to hand it over to God to please build the rest of my life. Run home and here's what you're going to find. Your heavenly father has, their, has his arms open wide. He's been scanning the horizon and he won't even wait till you get to him. He'll run down the street to catch you. It'll take you into his arms and he won't even let you finish your sentence before he scoops you up and puts a robe around you and a ring on your finger and says, you're my son, my son, my daughter has returned. Run home to your father, please. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer, but I, I want to ask you to just take this step of faith. No one looking around. Everyone's heads are bowed, eyes are closed here online at Cooper City. But if that's you, if you're saying, I, I need to come home, I, I need to run to the arms of, of my father, would you just slip your hand in the air and put it back down? If you say, today's the day, amen. Anybody else, you say, I, I need to return to my father. Just slip your hand in the air and put it down. Just say, today's the day I'm running home. Amen. Let me lead you in this silent prayer, just you and God. Just say, Jesus, I return to you. You brought me into your family at such a great cost. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.